Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Dave Zimmerman, and I'm an associate professor at Duquesne University and emergency medicine pharmacist at UPMC Mercy Hospital. And I'll be your host for today's ASHP Therapeutic Thursday podcast. With me, I have two of our legendary EM pharmacists, Chris Edwards, who's an assistant professor at University of Arizona College of Pharmacy, and Nicole Aquisto, associate professor, Department of Emergency Medicine at University of Rochester Medical Center. Let's get started uh, talking about today's topic, codes that make you tachycardic. And this was presented at the ASHP mid-year clinical meeting. So Chris, I really enjoyed your review of Atomidate's controversy for induction in pediatric rapid sequence intubation. For the listeners that could not attend, could you recap this for us? Absolutely. But first, I want to say thanks for having me on and thank you for your kind words. Uh, I don't know about legendary, but if there are any legends, I hope they're for good reasons and not bad. Um, I'd like to apologize uh, in advance in case my voice is a little bit scratchy. I wasn't showcased this morning. It has nothing to do with uh, a late night out at the piano bar with the residents or anything like that. Um, But yeah, jumping into the uh, pediatric RSI controversy. So I like Atomidate. I use it really frequently in adult patients, and it's actually the only sedative that my institution has in their RSI box. So when I learned about the controversy surrounding Atomidate used in pediatric, I was really curious where that recommendation came from. So there was a strong statement that came out in 2010, basically saying Atomidate should not be used to resuscitate any pediatric patients with septic shock. And when I looked at the uh, articles that the guideline that made that recommendation had used uh, to make that fairly strong statement, the evidence wasn't very good. There was essentially a 31 patient case series looking at pediatric patients with meningococcal meningitis. Um, and in that study, 23 patients received Atomidate patients received something else, and they showed a pretty high rate of mortality in the Atomidate group, about 30%, compared to 12.5% who got something else. Now, with these retrospective studies, particularly when you're looking at something like this, there's a huge potential for selection bias, right? So if the patient has the potential to become hemodynamically unstable, it makes sense that the physician is going to probably reach for something that's not going to cause hemodynamic instability, which is why Atomidate's great, right? But if there's something that's concerning the physician about that patient, uh, they're probably also more. Um, so again, that selection bias uh, makes this study interesting, but not particularly powerful. The other study that was cited uh, in that guideline was the Corticus trial, which was a huge study looking at hydrocortisone use in adult patients with septic shock. But in that study, they did a post hoc analysis of the subgroup that received RSI, and that included 96 patients that received atomidate, again, all adults. And they found a pretty high rate of mortality, 42%. But again, it was basically subject to that same selection bias. And so when you really start digging into this uh, recommendation to avoid the use of Atomidate in pediatric patients, there's not much there. And then when you look for other studies to either support or refute that, there's a bunch of other really small studies of poor methodologic quality that don't really help answer the question. So... My takeaway from this is that the use of Atomidate in pediatrics is potentially controversial, controversial, 
Um, I think that it's probably not the best first line agent, but if for whatever reason you can't use ketamine, uh, Tomidate is probably a pretty reasonable second line there. And when you're uh, using Tomidate, would you recommend uh, normal standard dosing? Yeah, I usually do 0.3 mix per kilo uh, for Tomidate. That's kind of my standard intermittent dose. Um, and then there's also a recommendation that exists to consider uh, adding hydrocortisone supplementation, again, based on no evidence at all. Um, but it's something to consider if you do decide to use Okay, awesome. So switching gears a little bit, um, one of the roles an emergency medicine pharmacist plays is not only you know which agents to use, but also how to administer it. And this can be tricky with our little tykes. Uh, for someone like myself that uh, doesn't have a big pediatric population, um, but you never know when somebody uh, might come to your uh, come to your ED. Could you explain the push pull method for fluid resuscitation and, and why it should be used compared to other fluid resuscitation methods? Yeah, absolutely. So the push pull method is really the way that I like to give pediatric fluids, um, and there's a few different reasons for that. When you think about your other options, um, they're either going to be really slow or really difficult to measure. So you could just hang a bag of fluids and let it run to gravity, but again, you don't really have a lot of control over the volume that you're administering. You don't really have a lot of control over the rate of flow. Um, you can hook it up to an IV pump, but those are pretty darn slow. So you can run it at a max rate of a liter an hour, um, but if you're trying to give a fairly big volume, like 500 milks, it's going to take a half an hour to get that in. So uh, you can put it in a pressure bag, but again, you lose that control over the amount of volume that's being infused into the patient, and you don't really have that feedback that you would if you were pushing it through a syringe. So there are other options, but the thing I like about the push-pull is it sort of negates some of the downsides to the other administrative strategies that you can use. So the push-pull method, I think it should be called the pull-push method, but the way it's described in the literature is the push-pull method. But basically, you use a three-way stop. You hook up one side of it to a bag of fluid. The other side goes to the patient, and then you hook up a syringe, usually 30 or 60 mils. And what you do is you pull the fluid out of the bag, you measure up the volume in the syringe that you want to give, and then you turn the stopcock so that instead of pulling from the bag, you're not pushing into the patient, and you go ahead and push in whatever volume you've removed from the bag into the patient. It's a little cumbersome to set up, but once you're familiar with how to set it up, it's actually pretty straightforward. And again, a little bit um, easier to measure specific volumes. You have that instant feedback in terms of uh, line patency as you're administering the fluid bolus. Feel if there's any major change and get an idea of whether or not you lost your IV access or something along those lines. Uh, and there's actually some data to support it. So compared to other methods for administering fluid boluses, the push-pull method is pretty reasonable. You can get a 500 mil bolus into a patient, assuming they've got a really great IV line. You can get it in about two and a half minutes. Um, gravity generally takes about five minutes to get the same volume in. A pump set to 999 will take about 30 minutes to get that same volume in. So it's essentially equivalent to using a pressure bag uh, with all those extra advantages of having that feedback on the line and more accurate volumetric measure. Awesome. Um, and then, uh, Chris, you had an excellent uh, analysis of lidocaine versus amiodarone for shockable uh, VFib, VTAC, um, in pediatrics. Um, could you uh, touch base on this a little bit? Um, seems like you may be uh, favoring uh, one agent to use here. Yeah, and it's really weird. So I, uh, in adult patients, I'm a little bit more of an amio guy. And then for kids, I think I'm favoring lidocaine after doing this review. So look in the PALS guidelines. They say that when you get to the point that you're considering an antiarrhythmic, that you can use either amiodarone or lidocaine. Uh, 
compare that to the ACLS guidelines where it's pretty clear they say use amiodarone uh, and then maybe use lidocaine if for whatever reason you don't have amiodarone available. In, in kids, it's different. They say amio or lido. And I was curious, where did that recommendation come from? So I pulled the studies that were cited for that recommendation, one of them, so it's pretty easy literature. And uh, basically, that recommendation came from one study that was written in 2013 by Valdez et al. And in this study, they looked at 889 patients who had in-hospital cardiac arrest uh, with pulses VTAC or VFID as their presenting rhythm. And in this study, they looked at the rate of return of spontaneous circulation, and then as their secondary outcomes, they looked at 24-hour survival and survival to hospital discharge. When they were looking at 24-hour survival, they showed a clinically meaningful and a statistically significant uh, increase in 24-hour survival with lidocaine group. 47% of those kids made it uh, through the first day, compared to 30% in the amiodarone group. And then looking at survival to hospital discharge, the lidocaine group had a trend towards improved survival to hospital discharge. 25% of those kids left the hospital compared to 17% in the amiodarone group. So it didn't reach statistical significance, but if they would have been powered for it, I'm sure they would have. So again, it makes lidocaine look really compelling. There are some limitations to the study. It's retrospective. They didn't look at neurologic recovery because they didn't have the data for it. And a relatively low number of patients responded to antiarrhythmics. But it's compelling enough that if I don't have something really nudging me towards amio, I'm probably going to go to lido first line for kids. All right. Awesome. Now we're going to switch gears and uh, talk to Nicole. Uh, now her voice sounds very good, so I'm going to assume she was not at the piano bar last night. <laughs> um, but you discussed uh, management of um, unstable um, pregnant patients. Um, you started off um, discussing the old FDA pregnancy category um, with the new pregnancy and lactation labeling final rule, or PLLR, from 2014 and its application to rapid sequence intubation meds. So what are your go-to meds for RSI for a patient that is pregnant? Yeah, well, thank, thanks so much for having me today. I do want to talk a little bit just about the FDA pregnancy category changes to the pregnancy and lactation labeling rule. So as you mentioned, 2014 from the FDA, and what they're doing is basically phasing out the five-letter system. They're felt that there's confusion and there's kind of this lettering system. So what the new labeling is, is each uh, drug will now have a risk summary that really describes more of the pregnancy and lactation data that's available, and also using pregnancy registry data as well. And so any drug that, um, they're basically phasing out the, the pregnancy categories for all drugs, but any drug from 2001 and newer will then have this risk assessment. So when thinking through um, drugs that we're using, obviously in high acuity situations, it does make looking for the best drug a little more difficult since it's going to take a little more time through the information that's there. The long and short of it, though, is with any critically ill scenario in pregnancy, you're going to use the best drug um, for the pregnant patient that you would as the non-pregnant patient. And we'll talk a little bit later about treating the mom. The mom is your main patient, and if you can keep the mom stable, maybe we'll hopefully remain stable. So thinking about RSI, there's obviously several sedative drug options, and this can kind of be, um, or an example of this is that propofol, for instance, is a, a category B drug. So that would be the safest um, drug if you're just looking at the five lettering system. But if you have a patient, a pregnant patient who's hypotensive, you wouldn't necessarily want to use the higher pregnancy category rate drug there because you're, the patient would be at such risk for hypotension. 
and we don't want to cause hypotension um, because the uterine placental vascular blood doesn't auto-regulate on its own. And what would happen, or what happens is when the mom becomes hypotensive, the blood flow gets shunted away um, from the uterus and from the placenta, and it goes to the mom's vital organs to save the mom. So the mom doesn't favor um, that other compartment or the baby either. So in that case, even though propofol has the highest pregnancy category or the best pregnancy category, um, you would choose, you know, ketamine or midazolam, fentanyl or something like that instead as as a sedative agent in in that particular situation. So really just use what you would normally use um, in that scenario based on the patient's inquiry or critical illness. A follow-up to that, um, anything from a dosing perspective that we should know, I guess, if you go from first trimester all the way to the third? Yeah, no, not really. Um, so obviously, teratogenicity is going to be more of a concern in that four to 12 weeks. And after that, second and third trimester, you're really looking more at drug toxicity itself or adverse event that happens. I do want to mention um, with the paralytics, there is a little bit. So the dosing would stay the same. Um, you're still going to use really, um, you know, from a sedative standpoint, you're still going to use the, the appropriate weight-based drug like you would in a non-pregnant patient. For the paralytic agents, there is a little um, variability. So with succinylcholine specifically during pregnancy, um, the monoplasma cholinesterases decrease by about 25%. So what happens in the setting of sucks is that the, the drug is going to stand longer, there's going to be more um, risk of prolonged apnea. So in that case, that would be a reasonable setting to either modify your dose to like a one mg per kg dose instead of a 1.5 mg per kg dose, or instead of using actual body weight, use more of a dosing body weight. Now, rocaronium can be used for pregnancy as well. Um, If you look, a lot of this data is with cesarean sections, and the thing you do have to be mindful of is if the mom is delivering at the time you're doing the RSI would be a reason to not use a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker just because the length of duration has crossed the placenta. Um, there's still, you know, a reasonable concentration in, um, in the baby after and that there's data with, with using macaronium for RSI in that post-delivery setting, the APGAR scores are really low um, for kind of that first five minutes or more of life. So just being cognizant of that. But if, if your mom's not delivering at the time of RSI, then whatever agent you feel is best to use. Yeah, awesome. And I guess staying on the, the dosing um, side of things. So let's say one of our listeners is on a rapid response team and responds to a cardiac arrest of a patient that, that is pregnant. You know, what pieces of advice or recommendations can you give us based on our ACL, ACLS algorithm? Yeah, um, so I, I really made out here. Chris obviously uh, talked a lot about different specific data, and there's there's really no data in pregnancy. So, um, and especially for a critical illness and an RSI or cardiac arrest, the answer is pretty simple: that we're going to continue to do um, what we're doing with meds uh, that we would in a non-pregnant patient. So, as far as the ACLS algorithm, you would still follow again your your same dosing recommendations that you would in a non-pregnant patient, and you would still use. The, the same drugs that are recommended without um, concern for potential downstream um, effects. We also have to remember for pregnancy too, you know, a lot of when we're talking about RSI or cardiac arrest, a lot of you know, times we're giving one or two doses of drug and there's not going to be the prolonged exposure really where you really worry about after. Some of the differences just from an ALS or ACLS um, algorithm or when you're thinking about BLS really have to do with kind of the physiology changes uh, in the pregnancy. So for instance, when um, 
when moms are about 20 weeks or more, there's pretty significant compression just from uterine contents when you're in a supine um, position, really compressing that inferior vena cava, reducing um, your venous return, and ultimately reducing cardiac output. So a lot of um, what's mentioned is that there's, you know, it's a lot of manipulation of um, the pregnant patient themselves. So in a non-cardiac arrest situation, if you have hypotension, doing a left lateral tilt to try to move the, the uterine contents and the weight um, off of your large vessels. And then in a cardiac arrest patient, um, doing a left uterine displacement, which is basically cupping and, and kind of pulling up the uterine contents and moving them to the left um, and kind of off the large vessels to improve cardiac output. Um, as far as just on the BLS track too, as far as um, hand placement for compressions, so again, patients in the supine position with this left uterine displacement, um, but hand position stays the same. There used to be a recommended relation slightly higher, um, but that's not recommended anymore. So hand placement's the same. This left uterine displacement is the only thing. And then um, as far as drugs, same doses, same drugs, and just making sure that you do have IV access above the diaphragm. So the diaphragm is moved about four centimeters up, um, making sure that Again, because of this compression, you want to make sure that you're delivering any IV meds um, above the diaphragm to ensure uh, circulation of drugs. And uh, I really liked one of your key takeaways of give the best maternal care for the best fetal care. Um, can you expand on that? Yeah, of course. Um, so it's really, you have two patients, right? You have the mom and you have the baby, but whatever you do for the mom is going to affect the baby more or less. Um, so if the mom has poor oxygenation ventilation, the baby is going to have poor oxygenation ventilation. And if the mom has poor perfusion and hypotension, the baby is going to um, to have that as well. So it's just really important. You have to remember mom's your primary patient um, and things like the tragedy of certain drugs or these downstream um, potential toxicities really aren't um, the concern in these settings. The best... Um, most of the time, the best place for the baby to be is in the mom. Um, and if you can continue to provide the best care to keep the mom healthy, that'll help keep the baby healthy um, downstream. And, and I do just want to clarify that point because during um, ACLS, just going back to cardiac arrest, you know, part of the treatment is is to do perimortem um, C-section if the arrest is going on before prolonged even just a short period of time, four or five minutes, um, to do a perimortem delivery just to help um, improve the mom's cardiac output and reduce the likelihood of the baby having anoxic injury as well. So just wanted to clarify that okay. statement. Absolutely. So um, that's all the time we have today. And I want to thank Chris Edwards and Nicola Quisto for joining us today to discuss codes that make you tachycardic. Um, you can join us here um, every Thursday where we'll um, be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.